Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash QQG. This activity is supported by an educational grant from UCB Biopharma SRL. Welcome to this peer voice panel discussion on myasthenia gravis. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Drs. James Howard, Ali Habib, and Nicholas Silvestri. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm James Howard, Chip Howard to many of you, from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Welcome to this activity called Emerging Complement Inhibitors for Myasthenia Gravis. Related, but different. Joining me in this discussion are two esteemed colleagues, Dr. Nicholas Silvestri from the University of Buffalo Jacobs School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, and Ali Habib from the University of California, Irvine in Orange, California. So the real question is why are MG treatments needed? One sees that the mortality has rapidly and dramatically improved over the last nearly 120 years. Patients with myasthenia still have an unmet need, and it's been estimated as high as 25 to 30%, and I would argue that if we take in quality of life, it could be as high as 60-65%. There are many complement inhibitors that have been approved and are under trial, and one sees the breadth uh, here, and we'll speak about a few of these uh, in a minute. The first complement inhibitor trial was with eculizumab, uh, given to a group of patients who had failed prior therapy. And one sees that compared to placebo in the top line, there is a dramatic and rapid and sustained improvement that is stained as they move into the open label portion of the trial. Uh, and this data is for 130 weeks. The second one is ravaluzumab. And be careful because the timeline is different from the previous slide that one saw but showing a much similar uh, response. And have either of you two had experience with this compound? I have, yes. I've had uh, several patients uh, on rebelizumab. Um, that includes both patients that I moved from ecolizumab to rebelizumab for a little bit more convenience uh, for the patients, but also uh, s several de novo starts as well. I've had great experience with this, and I would say my experience mimics uh, or mirrors what's been seen in the clinical trials. Ali? Uh, I have, uh, I'm a little bit behind Dr. Silvestri in that I've had uh, switches from ecolizumab therapy to ravelizumab and uh, happy to say that they have, uh, patients have remained stable. There has not been any change in their uh, clinical uh, symptomatology or exam findings. And uh, furthermore, they are definitely are very much appreciative of the much lesser frequency of infusions. I have not yet had a de novo start but uh, waiting to see how that pans out. So I think one of the benefits has been discussed is the fact that rather than every two-week intravenous dosing, we now have eight-week intravenous dosing, which is truly a convenience uh, for the patient. The next kid on the block, so to speak, um, is Xylucaplan, and it is not FDA-approved, as of um, May of 2023, 
with hopes that it will be in the coming months. But one sees a very similar pattern, if you will, a very rapid, robust differentiation from placebo. And my feeling is that many of the complement inhibitors are going to produce substantial benefit, as we've already seen in the two prior uh, drugs that we've talked about. But were any of you involved in this trial? I was not. Yes, we were part of the phase two and the phase three studies. And what do you see its advantages, Ali? So I think the big advantage here is the self-administration from the standpoint of the patient. Uh, It's very much like uh, an insulin shot. At least that's how we introduce it to patients as well. And uh, in our clinical trial experience, it's been very well tolerated uh, by the patients and there hasn't been much hesitation in um, delivering the drug, um, self-administration of the drug. Um, I think the other big uh, change here comparing to echolizumab and revelizumab is the nature of the drug, where here it's not a monoclonal antibody and it has its distinct advantages, especially when it comes to uh, therapy, other therapies that have recently been approved, the FCRN inhibitors. With the antibodies, you would uh, anticipate there being an interaction uh, between the two uh, mechanisms, whereas the, the cyclic nature of this peptide, it does not go through the FCRN mechanism uh, offering up uh, an uh, advantage. Yeah, you're quite right. And I I see that that as a potential um, therapeutic um, um, profile, if you will, that we will be able to combine a complement inhibitor with uh, uh, an antibody depleter such as an FCRN molecule and not fear for its clearance, if you will. This graph uh, graphs are what we call responder analyses or Christmas tree plots, as I call them. And one is with eculizumab, and the other is with xylucoplan. And one sees the shift as we increase the stringency of the expected response um, from very small change to very large change, favoring the active drug. And with the xylucoplan uh, graph, one sees the roots of the tree, if you will, and that favors the placebo. And so the lack of response, no response, or worsening response all supports placebo, whereas active drug all supports uh, a favorability uh, to it. Um, and it's another way to look at the data that has been acquired and realize or, or demonstrate the efficacy that we see uh, with these compounds. Not unique to complement inhibitors, Um, but uh, to any drug that is under study. And so when we talk about advantages and disadvantages to standards of care, uh, Nick, what do you see as the advantages of complement inhibitors as we compare them to what we currently use in our toolbox? I think several of the advantages are the rapid onset of effect. So uh, they tend to work within days or weeks versus uh, several months uh, with traditional agents, as you mentioned, Chip. Uh, the side effect profile uh, seems to be pretty favorable. Uh, there's a very narrow side effect profile, which, again, differs from some of the traditional agents that we use to treat patients with myasthenia. 
And there's been demonstrated efficacy in both mild, severe, and poorly responsive patients uh, that have antibodies to the acetylcholine receptor. Ali, what do you see as the disadvantages of complement inhibition? So, uh, again, while they are very, very effective, um, they're somewhat restricted to the acetylcholine receptor antibody positive patient, which fortunately is the majority of our patients with generalized myasthenia gravis. Um, the other big uh, detriment here and consideration is the very high cost of therapy for uh, the currently approved agents, which is many, many fold higher than even our most expensive previous therapies if you take into consideration therapies like IVIG and plasma exchange. Um, these do have a, a unique a risk profile uh, from the safety standpoint, which is uh, the it because complement has a major role in uh, the fight against encapsulated bacteria. These patients are uniquely susceptible to um, infection with encapsulated bacteria. Fortunately, uh, the immunizations are available for the encapsulated bacteria and. It's important to point out that the most uh, necessary immunization is against the Neisseria uh, group. The uh, You can still get by without immunization as long as patients are maintained on chronic uh, uh, prophylactic antibiotics. That's a requirement. Um, and it's important to point out that immunization does not negate the risk it reduces the risk of infection. One needs to be vigilant about the possibility of uh, Neisseria meningitis infection in particular, which can be life-threatening. I would just add that we're in generation one, generation two, and the hope would be that as we hit generation four, five, six, whatever, that costs will indeed uh, come down. And also that the the subcutaneous route of administration, uh, particularly with uh, the first one that will come forth in Xylucaplan can be stored at room temperature. And therefore, the patient now has freedom of movement and is not tied to an infusion center. So that clearly is uh, in an advantage. And as we've just heard, uh, there is a potential risk for meningococcal infection. And as been pointed out, vaccination is absolutely mandatory. But I will add to that um, one needs to educate the patient regarding the risk uh, and the symptoms, the presentations of meningococcal infection so that they are, are uh, knowledgeable enough to seek urgent medical attention. We ask our patients to carry a wallet card that tells them that they are on a complement inhibitor and the risk of infection that can be presented to the healthcare provider at any time. The vaccination protocols differ depending upon where one lives. Uh, in, in the United States, for instance, we have a quadrivalent vaccine and a B serotype vaccine. The latter is not available in all countries at this time. Um, and so one has to do what's recommended by your own particular health uh, ministry. If one cannot immunize prior to the initiation of the drug, um, but can do so later, then the individual needs to be treated with an appropriate antibiotic uh, for at least two weeks after the, uh, the vaccination. And then there are some countries that mandate prophylaxis 
with an antibiotic for as long as they are on uh, a complement inhibitor. The, the next question that comes up is what activates complement? And we really don't know the answer. And there are two lines of thought that are currently moving through the scientific community. One is of a threshold effect of antibody level, and the other is the multiplicity of epitope targets by the antibody to the acetylcholine receptor. And we like to share some initial data that is coming or that is out there uh, that is giving us food for thought, if you will. Uh, Nick, do you want to discuss this material? Absolutely, yeah. So there are uh, several, uh, a very important recent paper um, that has uh, come out um, that has looked at uh, the ability of uh, acetylcholine receptor autoantibodies to mediate complement activation. And what was seen is that uh, in over 40% of patients uh, with acetylcholine receptor autoantibody positive disease, uh, there was no uh, autoantibody mediated MAC formation. Um, furthermore, lower acetylcholine receptor autoantibody binding correlated with a decreased complement activation and MAC formation. So uh, there is uh, there's a little bit more to learn about this over time. But uh, you know the two lines of thought that you mentioned uh, before, Chip, are certainly uh, uh, supported by some of this data. Yeah, and I think you know information like this may have impact on how therapeutics are chosen or what combination of therapeutics uh, are chosen and. Uh, so this is the, the first line of evidence uh, that we spoke about. And then the second line, um, Ali, how about talking about this one? So this was also uh, another really fascinating uh, study that where they took uh, different clones and subpopulations of antibody-producing cells and looked at the subtypes of the acetylcholine receptor um, antibody and it's interesting in that any one type does not result in robust complement activation and you need multiple subtypes in order to cause activation of the complement. Um, and again, that uh, points to the variability within patients that might exist uh, that would, would potentially explain why there is a variability in response to complement therapy. And as you mentioned, if there was a way of figuring this out before the start of therapy would really help us tailor uh, the therapy for these patients. Yeah, I mean, these two lines of evidence are fascinating. And so the take-home messages that we've hoped to provide you with is that complement inhibitors provide rapid onset of action much faster than our typical toolbox and meet a critical unmet need for many of our patients with myasthenia. Uh, the regain population was a refractory, if we can use that terrible term, refractory population to therapy, yet were benefited by this. That the adverse event profile of this targeted therapy, such as complemented inhibition, are narrow relative to what we currently experience with many of our immune suppressive drugs. We would point out that complement inhibition is not effective for IgG4-mediated disease, such as musk myasthenia. So it would not be efficacious in this subpopulation. And our current standard of care therapies have no impact on complement-mediated damage to the neuromuscular junction. And this mechanism of action is unique. It leads to architectural destruction at the neuromuscular junction, which is not dealt with 
by any of the therapies that are in our current toolbox. So thank you for your attention. I hope this is of benefit to you. Hello, I'm James Howard, chip to many of you from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome to this educational activity on complementated attack in myasthenia gravis. Just in severe disease? Joining me in this discussion are my two esteemed colleagues, Dr. Nicholas Silvestri from the University of Buffalo, Jacobs School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences in Buffalo, New York, and Dr. Lee Habib from the University of California, Irvine in Orange, California. Welcome to you both. The pathophysiology of autoimmune-mediated myasthenia is unique. And unlike many autoimmune disorders, there's more than one pathogenic mechanism. We know that there's a loss of tolerance that starts in the thymus gland, developing autoreactive T cells, which then activate B cells in the formation of plasma cells, forming autoantibodies to the acetylcholine receptor and in a smaller portion of patients to other epitopes, such as muscle-specific kinase and LRP4. We also know that there's disruption of the neuromuscular junction, not only by antibody, but actually architecturally. And all of this produces impaired synaptic transmission, fatigable exertional uh, muscle weakness. Ali, can you take us through the three primary uh, pathogenic mechanisms? Happy to. So uh, as uh, most of you will know, there are different subtypes of antibodies in myasthenia, the most prevalent of which is the antibody directed against the acetylcholine receptor. And these in turn are uh, in, come in three flavors, uh, namely the blocking, uh, modulating, and the binding antibodies. And, and their names are somewhat uh, explanatory of the function that they perform uh, or dysfunction that they cause in myasthenia gravis. The blocking antibodies can actually functionally block the, the binding of acetylcholine to its receptor, thereby impairing neuromuscular transmission. And it's a simple steric uh, hindrance, uh, as opposed to the modulating antibodies that can result in internalization of the acetylcholine receptors from their location on the postsynaptic membrane, uh, thereby reducing the number of available receptors on the cell surface. Uh, perhaps the most uh, damaging of these antibodies is the binding antibody, which uh, also has the highest specificity and sensitivity in the diagnosis of myasthenia. Uh, but the way that this works is by the activation of the complement cascade, uh, which leads to a postsynaptic membrane destruction. Nick, can you teach us about the complement cascade? We never even would... heard about it when I was in medical school. <laughs> I would be happy to, Chip, and I learned about it in medical school, but promptly forgot it until it became relevant to my practice. Uh, so complement involves both the classical pathway uh, as the, and the alternative pathway as well as the lectin pathway. It's called complement because it was first uh, thought to or first described to being uh, able to complement the immune system to fight off bacteria. But the bottom line is that 
It's a number of proteins that ultimately uh, result in the creation of the membrane attack complex, or MAC. This is a combination of C5B, uh, C6 through C9, and this creates a pore-like structure that actually damages cells, uh, destroys cells, and in the case of uh, myasthenia gravis, uh, it uh, causes dysfunction of the uh, and damage to the uh, postsynaptic membrane. Should also point out that when C5 is uh, cleaved into C5A and C5B, C5A is important in uh, generation of inflammation at the neuromuscular junction. So just another way that the acetylcholine receptor antibody, when activating complement, can cause damage and dysfunction to the neuromuscular junction. Yeah, the membrane attack complex, as it is upregulated during um, uh, during disease, is the culprit not only in myasthenia, but in disorders like proxism nocturnal hemoglobinuria, atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome, perhaps NMOSD. Um, and it's been now recognized to play a critical role. And I'm going to ask Ali Habib to discuss this slide uh, for us uh, and its messages. This is another way of depicting what we had uh, mentioned earlier on the three mechanisms whereby which the acetylcholine receptor antibody subtypes can cause their uh, interference with neuromuscular transmission. If you pay attention to the third part, which is the complement-mediated action, what it is showing is the antibody, the binding antibody activating C5 uh, resulting in the cleavage and formation of the membrane attack complex, as Dr. Silvestri mentioned. I, I will say that uh, what all three of us have had to relearn is the new name for the membrane attack complex, which is a bit of a tongue twister, the TCC, the terminal complement complex. I think I got that right. Um, anyways, it, as Dr. Silvestri had mentioned, it creates the formation of a pore, and this pore uh, is uh, in, inserted into the membrane and causes lysis in the region, uh, resulting in a very oversimplified uh, membrane, really damaging the beautiful morphology uh, and architecture of the neuromuscular junction. Uh, and one sees the normal neuromuscular junction, the dark staining band of the location of the receptors, and the other radiograph demonstrates the absence of these elegant post-junctional membranes. And as Dr. Habib has mentioned, we see a flattened uh, post-junctional uh, surface. This is an end-stage neuromuscular junction in a patient with myasthenia gravis. It's probably not functional. And in between, in patients who have been biopsied, one sees a variety of differences uh, from normal, as you see, uh, to total absence uh, as one sees uh, here as well. And this accounts for what we believe is the complement-mediated attack. Our therapeutics uh, of commonly used immune suppressive agents do not account for this uh, ability to recover. Uh, the antibody alone is not the cause of this. The internal degradation is not the cause of this. Uh, it's the complement attack that results in this post-junctional architectural um, abnormality, if you will. And so, Nick, if you go on and, and talk about how our current therapies interact with the neuromuscular junction and what we can accomplish. Absolutely. Thanks, Chet. 
immunosuppressive therapies themselves, uh, medications like uh, azathioprine, mycophenolate, tacrolimus, those work directly on T cells and B cells and exert, therefore, a somewhat broad effect on the immune system. Uh, the antibody itself can be addressed through uh, certain uh, therapies like IVIG, plasma exchange, uh, and the more recently approved fetal neonatal receptor antagonists. Uh, but really, it's the complement inhibitors that are addressing the alterations at the neuromuscular junction, as you mentioned. Uh, by inhibiting complement, we inhibit the ability of the creation or the formation of the uh, MAC or the TCC, uh, and therefore hopefully preserve the neuromuscular junction from destruction. And here is a complement in action, if you will. Um, and this was the original complement trial, Regain, looking at a population that had failed other forms of therapy. Um, and there were specific trial criteria. And one sees uh, a placebo response as the top line and the active drug uh, as the bottom line and a very rapid and robust and sustained response. The vertical separator that is shown is the point in time when one rolls over from the blinded portion of the trial to the open label, and the placebo arm then has a rapid, robust improvement as well that then parallels uh, the original drug-drug arm uh, of the trial out to 130 weeks. The, the advantages of the complement inhibition is both not only in speed of onset of action uh, and the robustness to, to which we saw in a population of patients that had failed prior therapy. New complement inhibitor trials uh, have demonstrated efficacy in those patients who are not uh, refractory uh, to prior therapy. So a broad range of patients have been benefited uh, from this. This is the same data, but flipped in a vertical fashion. And the horizontal line is the point at which one rolls over from active uh, blinded portion into the open label portion of the trial. Uh, one to the right is the, um, the active drug arm, to the left is the placebo arm that then becomes active drug. And what's very unique about this, and I'd like your, your thoughts about it, is that the longer we treat the patient, we're seeing more and more patients improved. And the inset that you see in each of these horizontal bars are those individuals who achieve minimal manifestations. Uh, no functional weakness, if you will. So there may be a little weakness of eye closure, or if you really struggle, you may depress the deltoids a teeny bit, but no functional weakness on the part of the patient. And over time, uh, we see improvement through the blinded phase, but in fact, by the end of 130 weeks, about 70% of patients are achieving this. So I'd like to gather each of your thoughts as to what may be going on. Why do we see this? My own opinion is that there's probably further recovery of the neuromuscular junctions, right? We, we saw the, the alterations. I mean, maybe not those end-stage neuromuscular junctions that you pointed out, but maybe those that are affected to a lesser degree with prolonged exposure to the medication and with, therefore, less complement-mediated damage, there's recovery. Uh, and then that leads to uh, clinical improvement, functional improvement. Ali, what are your thoughts? I, I would agree. This is really, really fascinating. And uh, at this point, we don't have clear explanations, just hypotheses. But 
as best as we could consider, yes, there is uh, improvement and recovery of the neuromuscular junction. We would like to hope that it isn't unsalvageable and that there actually is recovery back to the native form. Um, wonder if there are new areas where junctions take place and that has any role to play here. I think that they, this is uh, an area that's really worth investigating because it might change how we think about myasthenia and myasthenia therapeutics. So you both bring up excellent points. And in, in, in my um, hypotheses or wish is that we have junctional plasticity and that with complement inhibition, we can actually reform and rebuild these neuromuscular junctions to become uh, newly functioning ones. And that the initial effect that we see may be like the stroke penumbra, that we can recover uh, very quickly, and that with sustained um, use of complement inhibition, there actually may be a plasticity at the junction that heretofore we've not been aware of. And uh, there is active research in this area at this time, and it's going to take some time to sort this out, but that's the wish and the hope. And so the take-home messages that we have for the audience are that there are several pathogenic mechanisms of myasthenia, that there is blockade of the receptor by bound antibody that sterically hinders transmitter getting where it has to go, that we accelerate a normal turnover process where receptors are internalized, new ones are formed, brought back to the surface, and that is accelerated, leading to a net loss of receptor density. And thirdly, that complement-mediated attack architecturally destroys this neuromuscular junction. And that complement inhibitors target this terminal complement complex, which we believe is the primary pathogenic mechanism for destruction at that junction. And binding of of antibody and the development of the membrane attack complex or terminal complement complex is the mechanism by which this postjunctional destruction occurs. And that the use of complement inhibitors requires appropriate vaccination against Neisseria, which is different depending upon where you live within the world, but one must adhere to those standards of care that are necessary to use complement inhibitors. And we thank you for your attention uh, to this module. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.